Welcome to Mutfakta Kim My Podcast. Speaking of the podcast a little, then introducing you to the audience. It will be the first time recording this in English, so it will be the first episode in Mutfakta Kim My that will be in English. Directly translating what Mutfakta Kim My is, it's who is in the kitchen. Kitchen in the sense where cook, cooks, and people do produce. So. Before you, most of the podcasts that I recorded were primarily involved with artists, academics, entrepreneurs, business people. And what we are trying to mainly focus is the people's stories. It's not like the story of stories of success. It's not like the stories of products. It's directly based on people. And turning back to the listeners now, I am today with Amar Calderon, whom I received the privilege of meeting up with a month ago when... I had the chance to visit Tel Aviv with the Turkish Entrepreneurship Foundation delegation. So when I was there, there was this one day where we were in Google Google for startups, and right after we listened this wonderful and inspiring speech of Yossi Vardi, who is like this really influencing and important person for not only the startup ecosystem of Israel but for the world as well. Then right after that speech, you came up, and luckily you said that you will be in Istanbul. In a month, and I had the chance to like have this chit chat with you, where I was like, "Okay, let's try to figure out." And thanks to you, we had a brilliant scheduled event, and here we are. So, welcome to Mutfakta Kimar podcast, Amash. Thank you very much. So, to be here. great. Like one of the first questions that I generally ask to those people that I podcast is, "Who are you, and where do you think your story started?" It's a great question. I think that my mom. Keep on asking me that question again and again and again. Who am I and what I'm doing? Um, I think that eventually, after I'm 32 years old, mm-hmm. and I think only in like the past four or five years, I actually could put the finger on what I'm actually doing. And it was something like gather people around a cause, and the idea that the cause can change all the time. And I'll tell you how it started and when it started. Uh, but basically, people gathering people around a cause means that. Um, building communities and managing communities, actually being a community leader. It's not managing the community because most of the time the community manages us and not vice versa. Um, but I think it all started when I went to work in South Africa, in Cape Town, in 2009. So 10 years ago, I went. I was sent by the Israeli government to work with the Jewish community in Cape Town, in South Africa, where I lived for two and a half years. And for the first time, I gather people around the cause of connecting the Jewish, uh, the Jewish community and Israel. And then when I came back to Israel after two and a half years of doing it both online and offline in South Africa, I realized that this human connection, uh, back in the day it was still very early iPod, iPad times and stuff like that, or iPhones, uh, but still people realized that we need more connection. We need more face-to-face interaction. And even if it's not face-to-face, it's online, we need to create an added value for the community. So since then, up until now, that's the main focus I've been doing. Um, mostly through creating online communities and offline communities around experiences. So I don't know if you're familiar with Burning Man, but I was one of the founders of the Israeli Burning Man community, uh, where nowadays we have about 65,000 people. And actually tomorrow is, tomorrow the, um, we are October 30th, mm-hmm. it's the first day of the Israeli burn. Number, uh, event number seven. So we have seven years in a row, uh, an amazing event, and I'm actually landing in Israel tomorrow and going directly there. Um, but more than that is like basically creating those um, meaningful connection, both online and offline, uh, around experiences. So that's what I've been doing 
like that, that's crazy. Like I think one of the most important topics that is brought to everyone's life, like entrepreneurs, students, people who are enjoying living is all about communities these days because I think it's also one of those topics that has been challenged so much, not only with technology, but also with all these various dynamics as well. And this like attempt of balancing the online and offline worlds where you are trying to establish communities, I think that's, that stays the challenge. Like speaking of Burning Man, if I'm not mistaken, it's one of those events where people do not only attend to focus on their, let's say, cell phones. It's, I think it has this notion behind where you guys, the organizers, are trying to attempt, let those participants go away from all their tech-related yeah. like materials. Is this, is this one of those notions behind? And if that is, like, would you mind to compare all these challenges where you are trying to set up online and offline? Which goes more valuably these days? Yeah, so Burning Man started about 32 years ago in the US. Uh, and after a couple of years, when people wanted to bring Burning Man into other places around the world, the organizers actually came up with the 10 principles. Um, people who are aware of Burning Man probably heard about the 10 principles. The 10 principles are basically 10 different ideas that basically implemented during uh, Burning Man. And nowadays there's more than 80 Burning Man events or Burning Man-like events, we call them burner events, uh, happening uh, all over the world. Six of them are in Israel. So Israel become, within a couple of years, the second biggest event in the world. So there's Burning Man with 80,000 and there's the Israeli one with about 14,000 people. Uh, and the idea is that basically we're building a temporary city mm -hmm. in the middle of nowhere. And then at the end of the event, everything goes back exactly as it used to be. As one of the principles, leave no trace. Um, another thing is like other principles like as immediacy and participation are basically pushing the individual to go and try something different. And as you said, it's basically like, you know, disconnect. So most of the people I know and most of the people going to events like that are actually switching off their cell phone for the entire days, sometimes five days, sometimes eight days completely disconnected from the outside world. Um, this is one form of immediacy, when we pe when tell people to actually go and experience the moment where they live. Now again, the not again, but the 10 principles are the idea and the basically notion of how Burning Man should be celebrated or should be lived by, um, but it's not necessary. It's not that you won't see people with cell phones taking photos or actually going on a phone call. But the environment, okay, and the, the society that is going to, uh, to Burning Man is basically pushing you in a, in a positive way to try something different that is different from uh, the day-to-day -day life. Um, and at Burning Man, and specifically at offline experiences, like we try to, we, the organizer, try to um, put people in, I think that eventually what we're trying to, to do is to create um, a huge difference of the day-to-day -day life and the things that you see on a day-to-day -day life. So you'll go to an event like that, or the people that go on events like that, mostly trying to experience something different. They're ex uh, experiencing the immediacy where they actually go and interact with people they've never interacted before. Uh, they're going and trying different things that they've never tried before. They're talking about different things that they never uh, tried before. They're pushing their limits in a positive way to try something different. And those are the type of experiences that eventually uh, being taken away into the real world or the outside world, as we call it at, uh, at Burning Man, the default world. Uh, I had this one question sure. that I would like to ask, but before this, there's also another thing that popped up in my mind. 
Like, do you think is it easier to satisfy people in this age where it's really hard to satisfy every single one of us with like putting them into a group of, let's say, community, or is it like a personal pure satisfaction is more easily reached out? Uh, it's a great question. I think that eventually all of the communities that I'm involved in, in and trying to lead or manage, mm -hmm. as I said, I'm not a manager, but mostly leader for communities, uh, based on what I call participation. So participation is the main focus and I think eventually the main everything at communities because the individual is dictate how much of the experience he or she would like to have. Similar to Burning Man, everyone dictate how Burning Man will be for him or for her. The only person that decide whether it's going to be a positive experience, negative experience, overwhelming, is the person, person himself. Same with most of the communities that I'm involved in. So it's kind of like putting the burden mm -hmm. on the individual to dictate how much the community will be powerful or not powerful, um, um, new or not new to, to this person. So in an era of communities, mm -hmm. it's also an era of the individual to stick out of the, of the community and actually decide what he or she will take from the community, how much the community will affect the day-to-day -day life, and more than that, how this affects our experience in our day-to-day -day life. So eventually it's like, again, putting the individual to understand what he or she wants to take from the community. And it's like a, kind of like a loop. That's that, another uh, challenge though. Like, I think one of those really interesting, like nature behind the idea of setting up community is that the word community itself is saying so much and also saying so little at the same time. Yes. And one of the things is that the KPIs of community success, it's all so blurry. So yes. like, you don't know, like, just like you said, you say like most of the community builders are like community managers, those people who are trying to establish well-running communities are trying to put like the stuff into this gaming box and then let the person play. So one person might really enjoy so much or one person might be like, okay, that community that I was involved in definitely changed my life. Or the other person might be like, okay, that was one of the most like shitty experience that I ever had. Yeah. So like, when do you guys, like, or personally speaking, when do you be like, okay, what myself or me and my team established is a pure success in terms of community build-up? So you spoke about, you touched a couple of things uh -huh. in community basics. Um, I think that since Facebook introduced um, um, Facebook groups, it basically, uh, the beginning of the, of the era of like a lot of people, oh, I have community. And, oh, I have this Facebook group with, I don't know, 2,000 people referring to a community. I would challenge that. And I would say is that definitely some of the Facebook groups or the like, you know, social media um, groups are community. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not necessarily. It's not that once you open a group, you automatically become a community manager. Uh, although the official title of, of, of uh, Facebook is once you have a group, you also have a community. Um, I think that it's not a problem, but I think one of the uh, challenging um, we are actually in a challenging time where we're trying to use communities and also not, uh, not finding KPIs, but also kind of like, I'll re rephrase myself. <laughs> um, because of the only online world, mm -hmm. because of uh, online communities, we're trying to also bring KPIs we know from marketing uh, language, right? Like the engagement and how many active users we have and stuff like that. Although in a community, it's not a linear uh, line mm -hmm. where you start over here and finish up there. 
it's something, it's like more like a, um, a spiral or a loop or something like that. And every person starts in a different place and every person ends in a different place. And it's not something that is easy to measure. But I can tell you that it doesn't matter whether it's an online community or an offline community, you know what good engagement is. And sometimes when you need to attach it to the dollar sign at the end, right, to show the profitability of the community, it's very, very, very challenging. But then you have two questions, or I ask uh, myself questions and the companies I've worked with uh, on communities or helped establish communities, is one, what would be the added value for the individual, okay, in that community? This is number one question that you need to ask yourself whether you're a not-for-profit or for-profit organization. What would be an added value, not for the organization itself, but for the individual of putting him with another individual in the same community? Once you have that answer very clear and, and, and easy to, to say, it will be much easier for you to kind of like plan what the community activity would look like, uh, what you consider engagement. Engagement is someone that just writing a comment or asking a question, or engagement is someone that is behind the, behind the wall kind of like, you know, helping you making everything happens. Uh, there's a lot of different type of engagements, and when we try to put it into numbers or KPIs, it's very misleading. So the number one question, as I said, is what would be the added value for the individual being with another individual in that community? Okay, what would a person would gain from being in that uh, community? Um, it can be content, it can be interaction, it can be new connection, it can be a lot of different things. And the second thing that also I ask myself or ask different communities I was involved in is what would be um, the organization, again, for-profit or not-for-profit, um, focus on giving the community. So, in another word, the question is like, what would the organization gain from the community? And a lot of the times we wanted to use it as a marketing channel, which is important and it's good, but there's many, many more things. Whether they would be uh, beta testers, okay, of a new product, whether they're gonna be the shapers and the designers of how a new product will look like, or whether it's a not-for-profit, how much scale we give to the community uh, to affect our day-to-day -day, um, activities in the, in the non-for-profit. So once you said, okay, I have a community, you also need to understand what you want to gain of the community and what you want the community to give to you as an organization. One of the other interesting things about community is that it evolves so much. Like even the mentality behind each and every single one of us, when we hear the word community is changing. Like back in the day, I think people were more easily finding themselves a member of these already established, maybe let's say God-given communities, where most of those communities were based on nationalities, religion, yeah. like footballers, mm -hmm. like soccer teams, basketball teams, and people were already like easily taking those community memberships for granted. They were like, okay, I was born in Turkey, the Turkish community, okay, I gotta get up with those folks. Not a lot of diversity and change was in those communities. Yeah. Yet by the time like today, like most, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I sort of feel like most of us try to avoid those already established communities and try to like challenge those mindsets by trying to go forward, like go forward than yeah. what is already in there. And is it like easier for like, let's say the community people, like community managers or maybe for like each and every single one of us who are trying to actively seek on community membership to have a sense of belonging in a community where it's now more artificial, yet maybe more sophisticated? Um, the answer is yes and no. <laughs> um, I think that you touch like what, like, you know, nationalities mm -hmm. and gender and a soccer was something um, that we once used to call as our, our uh, identity, 
okay, we had different type of identity types and um, you would call yourself, I don't know, like a soccer club fan if you actually feel very, like you identify with that uh, soccer club and you say like, you know, I really like them and I really support them because of A, B, and C. In the globalization or more and more, where we become more and more global, actually a lot of things are affecting our today, um, our today identify, identification or how we identify uh, to others. And it's much easier to actually find someone that is liking the same things that you are that actually based in, I don't know, like uh, Korea or in the US or in Israel. And thanks to the, like, you know, to the online world and the social media in the past 10 years, it's much easier to establish and find those communities or other people who identify the same way as you identify around a topic or around a cause. So I think it's thanks to the globalization that we actually can like, you know, establish worldwide communities and worldwide um, groups around a cause that we like and we support and we want to, uh, to put in the, in the, in the front. Uh, but on the other hand, it's also much harder because there's so many of that, okay? And I think eventually, each and every one of us cannot have so many communities that we super engage with. And that's fine because you don't have to be engaged 100% in all of the communities or in all of your identities. Everyone is made out of different identities, okay? I'm a male, I'm, I'm Israeli, I'm Jewish. There's a lot of different things, but I think I'm more Israeli than Jewish. That's a different conversation mm -hmm. that we can have, but um, both of them are a part of my identities, Okay, I'm Israeli and I'm Jewish, but one is kind of like going forward than the others. Uh, sometimes, for instance, I'm also a burner. Okay, I'm uh, attending Burning Man. I'm also one of the organizers, or at least I took a, a role to be an organizer. Is that means that I'm less Israeli than a burner? There's all type of like you know questions that eventually I think merge into the question of identities. And I'm very, I'm involved with a lot of different communities, but I think that eventually. A person cannot have more than five to ten identities or communities that he's super involved in, super engaged with, whether it's an online or an offline. And we spoke just before we started over here about online, offline, and the on life, which is kind of like the verge between the online and the offline world. Or it's mostly because I don't like the word offline because it has a negative, it's off. Exactly. Uh, so the on life activities is how much um, I'm engaged with that community and with like, you know, making it into a, um, uh, an important community, an important identity in my life, is how much I actually uh, go between the online and the offline or the, the real world and how much I want to interact with the people around that thing, uh, challenge the questions, uh, like, you know, uh, deal with that on, not has to be day to day, but has to be in, in our life and how much I want to give or bring from that idea of that topic or that cause into my day-to-day -day life. And I think this is the question that eventually uh, you need to ask. So how much, like what identities or what uh, important identities you have and you want in your life, okay? And everyone can answer it differently. Um, and the second thing is how much you want to bring from that idea or that cause into your day-to-day -day life outside of the online world. Now I will attempt to narrow down the subject to you more in person. And the question that I would like to ask is, why are you doing this in the sense, the first, like, what is the joy that you are seeking through establishing or attempting to establish communities? And in the second sense, like, why you specifically are doing this? Like, what, is, like, what kind of nature that should be in terms of the personality that the person has to seek the path of community builder, like community manager, or so that. It's a hard question. <laughs> um, I'll start with the second one. Uh -huh. How it started and how I found myself. Um, 
So I was born in, in Jerusalem mm -hmm. to a um, 15 generation uh, in Jerusalem father mm -hmm. and a mom that grew up in a kibbutz. Are you familiar with the kibbutz ideas? Like, I kind of remember that word when I was in Tel Aviv. Like, I swear <laughs> that I heard it. Yeah, kibbutz. Yet I think you got to remind us that word. So kibbutz is a settlement, okay? It's a social so a settlement mm -hmm. that started about 10 years, uh, sorry, 100 years ago uh, in Israel. Mm -hmm. It's the, the first place that was introduced. Uh, living the communist life mm -hmm. in a small community, mostly around agriculture. So the idea about 100 years ago, when Jews from uh, Europe uh, came to Israel, is that they said that we want to live in a small community. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, it was like not more than 100, okay? Very offline because there was no online back then. Uh, living a communal life where one thing is that you give what you can and take what you need. And the idea is that everyone had a different role. Uh, even raising the kids, okay, was in a communal way. They had um, kids' houses where you have your baby, and after a couple of months, you put the kids over there in the communal house, and the community is basically taking care of the kids as well. The idea was um, that back in the day, the socialist, uh, social life, um, like, you know, very much aspired from uh, Soviet Union or from 1917, mm -hmm. from uh, all the revolution happened in Russia and around the Soviet Union world, is that the, the community is much more than individual, much more important than individual than the individual. So the individual needs to contribute to the community as much as he or she can. And with that notion, okay, that's how my mom grew up in a kibbutz next to the Lebanese border uh, in Israel, uh, two and a half hours south of, uh, sorry, north of Tel Aviv. And with that notion, this is kind of how I grew up. I grew up in Jerusalem, but every uh, two or three weeks we went to visit my grandparents and my mom's family in the kibbutz. So growing up knowing what a community, and an extreme form of a community, living in a physical space, giving and contributing to the, uh, to the commune much more than the individual, is the mindset that I had since a young age. So you say, back, even back in the day, you were having this admiration Absolutely. of this communal life. Absolutely. Although there's a lot of uh, like, you know, criticism and mm -hmm. negativity as well. But I knew what like, you know, the individual life in a city looks like. Mm -hmm. In Jerusalem, almost one million uh, um, residents in Jerusalem nowadays. Um, very extreme, the capital of Israel with a lot of like, you know, um, not, not just fights, but a lot of like, you know, um, battles, mm -hmm. whether it's the um, secular, non-secular battles, the Israeli-Palestinian. Yeah, like the right of disagreements there. Yeah, a lot of disagreements in Jerusalem. And I saw the other kind of like, you know, extreme, mm -hmm. which is like a communal life that everything has to be voted in order to take care of. Even the kids that want to go and study in um, the university back in the day, mm -hmm. the, the kibbutz itself had a vote of what the kid will learn at the university in order to bring back to the community whatever the community needs. So it's all about giving back, like exactly. creating members so that they can go out there, learn, improve themselves and turn back to give back so that the community can improve itself exactly. continuously. So the community is one of like, you know, the most, like they praise the community. Mm -hmm. Again, that was back in the day. Nowadays, since the 90s, most of the kibbutzim actually failed mm -hmm. and become privatized. Mm -hmm. That means they become private, mm -hmm. and that idea is no longer what it happens today. It's actually much more individual life, but also with some community life, but completely, completely different shape. Living in those things mm -hmm. since a young age, since I remember myself, I always, always admired the community, always challenge. I remember when I spoke to my grandparents, I asked them, like, how come you put even your kid after three months, you tear them out of the house or the homes and putting them 
in like you know a child house mm -hmm. where you can see them I don't know a couple of hours a day how do you how do you cope with that and I remember the like you know the Zeke or the spark in their eyes saying like you know the community is the most important thing because it has much more added value for everyone so nowadays we like kind of sacrifice the, the time that we have with our kids but we know the kids will get better education better life uh, social life and, and everything will be better so this is where it started I think mm -hmm. Um, then later in the um, in the army, where every Israeli going uh, boys for three years and girls for two years, I think it's like the second uh, step of community, where you actually getting a lot of people that you've never even encountered before. Okay, different uh, cities, different backgrounds, different nationalities, different um, ethnic ethnic uh, uh, origins, meeting in one place. Okay, and have a very very specific target, which is you need to. Um, like, you know, get the basic training, okay? So no matter where you're from, you're doing exactly the same thing, and then you're doing the same uh, missions, and you have the same, like, you know, you fight together, uh, eat together, sleep together, everything is together. So that is the second step of, um, of community. And this is kind of like a forced community, because it's not that you chose to be there, you have to be there. And the same thing, like, the others needs to be there, kind of like by law. And if you're not going there, you'll sit in prison back in the day, how it used to be. And I think that once I finished the Israeli army, I started to explore what community means to me. And I did it uh, beginning, as I said, in South Africa mm -hmm. for two and a half years. And this is where I started to realize that if you gather people around a cause, and, and as I said, the cause can change and keep on changing all the time. Uh, but when you gather people around a cause and a positive cause that they want to contribute in, it's it's fascinating to see how many people are actually going uh, beyond what they can do on a day-to-day -day base in order to give and contribute to the community. And, and it's fascinating and it's something that I've been inspired by on a daily basis. That was a great answer, really. <laughs> it, was, it was this long yet profound, like touching every single point, yeah. I think that needs to be touched. And you know, coming closer to my ending questions, at least the ending phases of this very podcast, like we talked about what you have been doing, we talked about why you have been doing this, and like you also made some remarks about this question in your last answer as well. One of the other things that I would like to focus on this podcast is where you have been doing these things, like Israel itself. Like one of the things that was remarkably important, I think, for not only myself, but most of my other friends in this Turkish Entrepreneurship Foundation delegation, when we paid a visit to Israel, is this idea of startup nation, like the world knows that place as a startup nation. I think establishing communities there is a different story. Establishing businesses or bringing some impact to the game is a different story there. Obviously, it's a really broad topic, yet I ask you kindly to at least make some remarks about why Israel is different in that sense. What is there that is making that place so remarkable for change makers? And yes. That's the question. Okay. Um, so I'll start from the broad idea and mm -hmm. then we'll touch base in a couple of things that I was involved in exactly. in the startup, in the startup nation. So we need to remember that Israel was established 71 years ago, in 1948, um, right after very, very hard time of the Second World War, where a lot of uh, Jewish people um, disappeared, basically. And three years after the end of the Second World War, um, they made a decision to establish Israel with the notion that Israel is still a nation that is surrounded with a lot of um, not friendly faces. And this is up until now, 71 years old, 
uh, states, uh, pretty powerful, okay, very much like, you know, um, doing whatever the country wants. It's still the, the, the notion of, okay, we are surrounded by our enemies and the enemies want to throw us into, throw it, throw us into the water. With that uh, notion, which is not a positive one, and you don't want to live in a day-to-day -day life where you're feeling threatened all the time, it also kind of like um, Israel found an opportunity of how we can like, you know, take that notion and making something uh, positive out of it. And the positivity out of it is like, you know, how we should take a, uh, take a look at our life and actually create something out of this nothing. Because once you feel threatened, the only thing you focus on is how you're going to live. But instead of that, they said, you know what, we can create something out of this nothingness. Because we can, back in the day, again, 50s, 60s, 70s, there was no uh, neighbors that Israel could talk. It was a constant war situation. Um, and even up until now, we have a lot of like, you know, conflict with, with our neighbors. Syria and Lebanon in the north, uh, Palestinians both in the West Bank and in Gaza. And it's an ongoing conflict. But again, instead of focusing on that thing, they said, like, let's take something out of this nothingness and bring it into uh, creating like, you know, new life. So I call or focus on it and I look at it as like, you know, creating something out of nothing and creating something out of something. And Israel back in the day and up until now is basically um, flourish with a lot of uh, um, new ideas, both in tech and also not in tech. Um, trying to bring something else to the world because we know what like, you know, a constant fear and a constant less positive uh, feeling that, uh, that we had in Israel is like, let's go and try to change it and actually have an, a real impact. So in the 90s, uh, and also in, uh, in the past 20 years, uh, since 2000, uh, Israel has actually become not just the startup nation, but also uh, the innovation nation. That a lot of new ideas um, actually are being kind of like nested there, are being created in Israel and going uh, uh, outside of, of Israel, mostly because Israel is a very small country. It's not more than 9 million people. Okay, uh, the size of, I think, uh, 20 times smaller than Turkey. Uh, but because we don't have uh, a lot of people that can actually enjoy the products and enjoy the ideas that was created in Israel, we're exporting them all over the world, mostly into the US, Europe, Asia, Africa. But all over the world uh, kind of like enjoy the, the fruit of the innovation in Israel. And, and as I said, it's mostly because it's a small country, um, nine, people, nine million people and the only country that actually speaks Hebrew. So once you create something or you innovate something, you always always think of how it will influence the rest of the world and not just stay in Israel. With that thing in mind, um, that's actually how I found myself working in South Africa in 2009, right after I finished the Israeli army, is that I wanted to bring the notion of what it's like to be in Israel into South Africa. And as I said, the number one cause or the first cause that I had is connect the Jewish community and Israel in South Africa. Then later on, the same thing brought me into working and establishing the Israeli Burning Man community. I've been to Burning Man in 2009 in the US and I said, mm -hmm. we should bring it to Israel, but do it in a very Israeli way. So it's kind of like based on the same principles, but it's a completely, completely different experience and a completely, completely different mindset. Later on, I was involved in other things, uh, two startups that I was uh, a part of and also um, different communities and different events I was organizing. And in the past year, or just a bit uh, less than a year, I co-founded together with my, one of my best friends, a new hub for social innovation and art in the south part of Tel Aviv. 
So in Tel Aviv, we have one of the biggest, it's actually the second biggest um, bus station in the world called the, the New Central Bus Station, opened in 1993. The biggest bus station in the world up until 2010, where India then opened their new bus station. Um, but it kind of makes sense because in India or in New Delhi, they had a couple of millions living in the city. In Tel Aviv, we have 400,000 people. That's it. It sounds like one of those useless buildings that some probably politician like, put right in the middle so that like some sort of power reflection Absolutely. Like, can influence people's mindsets. You always, you're almost right because it's not a governmental building. It's mm -hmm. actually a privately owned building. So a private person in 63 decided that he wanted to build the biggest bus station in the world. Why? Because he can. <laughs> if you've been to New York, you know Port Authority, so it's two times bigger than Port Authority. It's crazy just to imagine this thing in such a tiny city like Tel Aviv. But what happened that since 93 up until now, this building become a catastrophe. It's like horrible, horribly, uh, it's like run down, mm -hmm. okay? Not a lot of people going there. It become this huge white elephant, which is like a big abandoned building in the, in the city. And almost a year ago, I walked with my friend and found out that there's two abandoned floors over there. Out of the seven, the first and the second are completely abandoned, locked and dark. And we said, how come in such a central place, um, like, you know, where it's very connected to the, uh, like, you know, all the buses from all over Israel are going there, very close to the train, how come nothing is happening there? We went and knocked on the CEO of the station and asked him, can we take... Can we take a look and actually do something over there? Slowly, slowly, we started to build a relationship. And within a couple of months, we, um, we spoke about actually renting this place and opening a hub for social innovation and art in order to bring the less privileged communities of the refugees and asylum seekers that are around those neighborhoods, including the uh, kind of like, you know, um, artist and musician and, and theater and all of the art kind of like uh, uh, people that are involved to put them together and actually do something different in order to kind of like make this area flourish again and integrate the less privileged communities into the Israeli society through art and culture. So it's again building a community around a different cause this time. And the cause, there's different causes, but one cause is to integrate them into the society. The second cause is to uh, bring and integrate art and refugees and asylum seekers together. And the third one is actually see how this area that become neglected and not in the, the focus, how we can make it uh, flourish again. I was just about to ask like one of the final questions for this podcast, like what excites you these days? And I think we can directly and probably most easily say that it's the white elephant that is like keeping you up all, like, keeping you up all night and Absolutely. like <laughs> making you feel so excited about what is yet to come. Yeah. Yet, like how, how is the process currently is doing so far? Like, so, is it all safe and sound and you, you kind of forecast, okay, Orchard, like <laughs> right after you publish this episode, like people who are going to listen to this can Google like White Elephant Israel and can probably see that hub is being created and people are enjoying themselves or there are still some obstacles that you got to like find a way to like get it done. Yeah, like every project as an entrepreneur and I was entrepreneur in many different mm -hmm. uh, uh, things in the past uh, 15 years, uh, there's a lot of obstacles. Um, having this crazy idea, and I'm talking about creating a hub of 11,000 square meters. So it's like, it's massive. It's like more, more of the, most of the, like, you know, even WeWork, the biggest WeWork we have in, in Israel is not that big. Um, so there's a lot of obstacles. Um, 
So if you'll type uh, White Elephant Tel Aviv, you won't get anything. And on purpose, we're under the radar right now because we still need to sign the contract with the landlord. So it's been like eight months negotiation. Hopefully, or by the end, you'll, by the time you'll publish this podcast, we'll have that signed. But it's still like a roller coaster, up and down, up and down all the time. Um, I think what excites me the most is to see how me and my friend, the, 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 me and my other founder, found this space. And up until now, every single time we spoke to someone about this, everyone got super excited as well. It's not just because it's a brilliant idea. Like every entrepreneur would say that he has the most uh, brilliant idea. It's because it's also in the right time and the right place at this moment. I mean, it sounds like a great waste management, like a place out of nothing. Exactly. If that turned out to be a hub where art, joy, happiness, and this real sense of community can be built up there. Exactly. It's and a game changer. It's a game changer, and I think that this is the right time, right after the uh, municipal election that we had, mm -hmm. that everyone actually spoke about the south part of Tel Aviv. So it's actually in the spark again. So mm -hmm. everyone wanted to do something with that, so it was the right time as well. Uh, but as, you said, as I said earlier, there's a lot of obstacles. Beside building this place, or not building, like, you know, renovating this mm -hmm. place, and the need of about eight and a half million dollars just to change, uh, to renovate it, we also need a lot of partners to want to be our partners. So the municipality is one of them, the landlord is another one, but there's a lot of other uh, for-profit and non-for-profit organization that we want them to support and be a part of that project. So it's an ongoing process of like, you know, roller coaster going up and down, getting yes and no's. Uh, but I think that with the fact that it's not just the co-founder and myself, it's actually 80 more um, volunteers who joined us into the efforts and making it your, uh, into a reality and having a white elephant open by the first uh, quarter of 2021. So we're talking about a year and a half from now, mm -hmm. should be open and, and active with a lot of like, you know, art and culture and different things over there. And I'll invite you to the open. That's exciting. Like, I hope I will receive the chance to come back to Tel Aviv, Israel again. And the next time that I will be there, I sincerely hope that I will also be able to come to White Elephant and be like, hey, Omer, like we talked about this like some time ago and now here I am. And it's emotional. I think it's this wonderful project and I'm looking forward to it. Like, best of luck. Thank you very much. So my questions are done. I enjoyed it so much. I think you are this great, you have this great personality, not only because all the community work, all this inspiration that you put through and you share to this audience and with me, but also like seeing this kid out of nowhere and talking with that person for like a minute and then deciding to set your time properly in your Istanbul location for the first time. I think that is really something and that is that is that is so inspiring really like I appreciate it so much. Thank you for spending your time sharing your knowledge experience with us and your energy. And that was lovely. So thank you for joining Mutfakta Kim my podcast. Mutfakta Kimmar turned out to be who is in the kitchen for the first time for this very episode. <laughs> and I hope not only you, but also the audience will enjoy what is out there for this episode. So thank you so much. And thank you for listening, guys. I hope we will be keep on doing this English serious podcast for Mutfakta Kimmar. So talk to you next time. See you.